If you are an HR professional, business owner, or at the operations level trying to understand what people want, you may be struggling. Our systems have been shocked, practices have been questioned, and culture is the leading conversation. Let's learn how culture is created, sustained, and why it should be the leading conversation when discussing hiring, training, and retention. This is the foundation of any business, and it's time to address it. So tune in to Let's Talk HR, humanizing the conversation. We tackle topics that influencers of change need to understand and struggle to overcome every day, such as where to start and what the new workforce wants and how to attract and keep positive momentum going. I'm your host, Leanne Lovely. This episode is sponsored by Practice Law, the law firm that puts professionalism in legal representation. Their attorneys have 49 years of experience behind their work. If you have questions or concerns, they are the attorneys you can trust. With expertise in litigation, real estate, criminal defense, family and divorce, business and real estate planning, you can count on them. Practice moves legal services forward. You can contact Practice at 414-988-9596 or 262-269-9140. Or you can inquire on their website, www.practicelaw.com. That's www.p-r-a-k-t-e-s-s-l-a-w.com. Jim Camriccial is a full-out talent strategy nerd. Jim's been in the staffing and or technology space for the biggest chunk of his career. Typically, he's helping clients solve end-to-end talent strategy problems, either through technology, service, or coaching. He spent most of his professional life trying to understand why people join and leave organizations and taking those learnings and helping organizations become more effective in attracting and retaining their people. His passion for talent led him to complete his doctoral research in organizational leadership on the topic of leadership style and leadership training and its influence on employee retention and turnover. He's not pure theory, though. He's taken the knowledge and applied it to startup accelerating growth in revenue organizations. He's worked on new project launches in tech and then built an IT staffing organization from zero clients and zero revenue to an $8 million organic growth business. He's currently at Circa, the leading end-to-end talent strategy solution in the marketplace. I'm so excited to have this uh, conversation with Dr. Jim. Dr. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. So thank you. Yeah, uh, great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on, Leanne. So why don't you start out by uh, telling us a little bit about you and your background and yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, first off, I do terrible Dr. Evil imp- impressions. So the details of my life are quite inconsequential. Um, so that's that's all the impressions that you'll get. Um, but in terms of kind of who I am and what I'm about and all that good stuff, I'm currently uh, one of the um, management leads at Circa. We are an end-to-end talent strategy solution. Uh, we actually happen to be one of the only ones that take a holistic approach to an organizational talent strategy, leveraging technology to help you build uh, diverse 
um, elite teams. Um, and you know, we can, we can talk about that at some point, but like, uh, when you're thinking about, or when I'm thinking about, you know, my career in general, you know, I'm, I'm a huge talent nerd. Um, and, and specifically in, in all areas of talent strategy is really my wheelhouse. Uh, I've basically built my brand and my career around that topic. Um, and if you look at the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, most of my career has been spent in or around uh, the talent space, whether it's acquisition, whether it's development, whether it's building technology efficiencies for organizations in, uh, in talent acquisition, um, building uh, recruitment organizations. Uh, so there's this deep thread of uh, my career that's, uh, that's talent focused. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will throw around the term nerd about all sorts of things, but, you know, uh, for the people that know me, I am a bit extra. So I actually uh, completed, uh, uh, this was several years back, but uh, I'm so passionate about this stuff that uh, my doctoral research was actually on uh, uh, why people join and leave organizations and more specifically what role leadership style and leadership training has on uh, employee uh, retention and turnover. So that's the long and short of kind of what I'm about and where I've operated. Hope that uh, hope that helps. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you and I have, you know, a couple of things in common. I'm, I'm a complete HR geek. I, um, you know, you use the, the term nerd, I use geek. I, I love this stuff. I love, you know, talking about this stuff, why this is why it's a perfect match to have you come on and talk with me. But you and I crossed paths. Um, what many years ago, when um, I had actually what I believe applied and interviewed at an organization that you were working at at that time. And um, you know, it, it wasn't the right fit, um, you know, for, for me, for, for, for you, whatever, doesn't matter. And now we find ourselves yet again, kind of in the same space where you now have a podcast. Um, I have a podcast and we're kind of talking about the same things, you know, culture, building this, you know, employee retention. So tell me a little bit about your podcast. What led you to that? So, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think one of the things, and, and I'll put it in terms of common problems that sales professionals deal with. So, you know, everybody was encountering um, all sorts of stuff during the pandemic era. And at that time, during the, 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 pan, uh, the period of lockdowns, one of the things that I think everybody observed was it's becoming more and more difficult to get in front of people in any sort of meaningful way. You know, I noticed, you know, there's only so much calling and emailing that you can do to get people to respond. So you need to be approaching that entire um, effort differently. And one of the things that, that, that comes up, and I actually built an entire practice that's, uh, that's focused on it, was you know, if, if you want to take a long-term view into your network and your relationships, well, you have to apply some long-term plays. Fundamentally, from a sales perspective, you have to get people to know, like, and trust you before you can advance any sort of selling conversation, right? So when email response rates, call response rates all went down, I started thinking about, well, what are some of the other tools in my arsenal that I can leverage to get in front of people? And I've always written, I've always, you know, shared out, you know, content uh, and that sort of stuff. And this was just another way for me to you know, potentially advance it. But I think the big trigger point was when I had actually left staffing and gone into another organization, 
Um, this was an organization that was focused on really uh, a, a services play into the market. And in order for people to actually understand the role that you play in this space, and it was a coaching organization, you really have to build rapport, trust, and credibility in your audience. And I was making a push that, hey, our entire sales effort is highly transactional. And for this sort of um, service, you can't sell the service like you sell tacos. You can't just message random people and say, hey, you know, spend a boatload of money with us because we're asking you to. The world doesn't buy that way. The world doesn't work that way. So we got to do something different. And that's lean into content as part of our demand generation strategy. Um, so my marketing counterpart and I had actually built out, you know, an 18 month roadmap with a week to week cadence that was broken down into the day in terms of what sales and marketing activities look like, but it didn't get any traction. So I just kind of went rogue and said, okay, all right. So if we're not going to apply company resources to get in front of the people that we need to get in front of and, and engage them in meaningful conversation, I'll just go rogue and Google the hell out of what I need to Google and figure it out. And that's the, the genesis of the podcast. Right. And I think that a lot of people felt those pains of, you know, during, during the, the pandemic of I'm, I'm dialing the way that I've always done it and I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting nowhere. So the, the people who were, had an understanding of what was happening during those times pivoted the proper way. It's the people who were struggling to get it and push that content in a different way that are, are still struggling to this day, even though now people are starting to pick up the phones again, a little bit, there's still people who are in, wait, I don't have to pick up the phone, and I can still run my business. And they're still not picking up the phones. It's, but a lot of companies started to pivot and figure out that we need to push our content a different way. And the world has decided that in order to make a decision, a buying decision, a everything that you said, there's there's has to be a foundation of a relationship. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, hey, when somebody calls you and and you don't know the number, do you pick up the phone? And they're like, no, not anymore. I mean, I I have a cell phone that now that actually tells me scam likely. That's what it says on your phone. Are you going to answer that? You know, it's so the only other way to reach a proper audience and then actually build up exactly what you said, which is that, you know, the rapport, the the ability to show them, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. I, I have the knowledge there. I am the expert in my field. Um, so awesome. That's great. You you were one of the smart ones who pivoted with the times and said, hey, I'm going to push the content out. So that's excellent. That's that's absolutely amazing. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, what what is the content? What is your. So, yeah. Um, so the 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 genesis of the show or the origin of the show was just pure need. But uh, my co-host and I, Lawrence Brown, we've known each other for, you know, 20 some odd years and we've uh, we're a couple of Gen Xers. So we're we're old and we're not supposed to be like aware of all of this newfangled technology or whatever. Um, and, you know, for those listening, I'm probably going to tell you to get off my lawn at some point, too. Um, but the uh, you know, we've had this conversation for years about, hey, you know, there's so much stuff that we were indoctrinated uh, on throughout our career, you know, work hard, be a high achiever, 
outperform and you'll naturally get recognized and rise to the top. And that's true to an extent, uh, but that has its limits. So we kind of we kind of benefited a lot of our leadership throughout the years. And, and you know, our conversation was um, our ongoing conversation that Lawrence and I had was wouldn't have been wouldn't it have been great if we had sort of a Cliff Notes version? That's an old person reference right there. Um, it's these little books that would give you like the cheat sheets of like these big ass novels that you didn't want to read when you were in school. That's what a Cliff Notes is. Um, that's like old people Google for for those listening. Um, <laughs> So we, we, you know, wouldn't it have been great if we had a Cliff Notes career hack that allowed people like us uh, to move their careers further faster? And that was uh, really the why of Cascading Leadership. We wanted to talk to women, um, people of color, uh, immigrants who have risen to senior leadership and have them share their stories of how they got to where they were so that we can actually democratize that knowledge and push that out into the world so other professionals can actually move their careers faster instead of like grinding like a schlub for 20 some odd years without getting any recognition for it and then wondering, well, crap, all these people are getting promoted before me and I'm outperforming them, what's the deal? So that's that's really the uh, the, the ethos of the show. So when we look at, you know, we're, we're, we're getting close to uh, launching season two, when we look at what are the areas that we play in, we have a heavy theme of our show that is sales effectiveness, marketing effectiveness, HR effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, and then we'll do other nerdy stuff like book reviews and whatnot. But, um, you know, we've had author spotlights where we've had published authors come on the show. Stu Hynek was one of the more recent ones that we've had. So it's a, it's really interesting. And for me, you know, I'm nosy. So I like talking to people and finding out, getting all up in their business. Um, that, that's totally off brand. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, it's, it's an outlet for me to, you know, really understand people at a personal level um, and, and build a stronger overall network versus, you know, 5,000 people who barely interact with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it, most podcasters, I, I mean, I know me, mine is pretty much 95% curiosity. And I guess the other 5% is, hey, maybe I can entertain some people and get some clients. Well, maybe it's more on the client side of, you know, hey, maybe somebody can see me as the expert and say, hey, how can she help me in, in, in the area of my business as well? But I mean, most of my most of the time, I'm I'm a true geek. I truly have the curiosity. I truly am interested in the people that I talk with. I mean, how could you how could you sit you know and do this all the time if you're not if you don't truly have that curiosity, right? Yeah, I mean the the intellectual curiosity bit is important, and I don't think you should necessarily shy away from the the whole client acquisition aspect of it because think about it. It, it, it depends on how you're leveraging it. And this was one of the big problems that I had with staffing because staffing as an industry talks about how they're a relationship business, but they actually treat people both internally and externally as disposable. Like if you're not hitting some metric or if you're not converting clients fast enough, you're out the door. And when you think about it from a personal professional brand perspective, your network is your client base for life. So if you're taking a long view, 
They might not be a customer now, but they might be a customer or referral source at some point down the road. So what are you doing today to invest in that relationship? And that's something that very few staffing organizations, you know, really pay attention to. It's all about, you know, hey, your results aren't there. Email and call harder. All right. (laughs) That's effective. Right. You're right. And there are... In historically, staffing companies are transactional-based businesses. Yeah. There are a few companies out there that are the diamonds in the rough. Me being a very relationship-based person, um, and, and, and here's another statistic. that's that's There are fee- how many staffing agencies out there have a podcast? I don't think there's any that I'm uh, that that officially have a podcast. They have people like you or me that might be running around rogue, but then we're always probably dealing with the question of, well, how is that impacting the business? Right. And my entire philosophy and the reason that I have left companies and turned down positions is because I am not a transactional based seller. I have I build relationships, I create relationships, and I have now come in you know, to people that I have known 15 years ago and said, oh, it's great to see you again because of the fact that I build those relationships. It's extremely important. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about your current role and how that how your philosophy on that relationship building and if that philosophy and your relationship building ties into where you're currently at. Well, I mean, the, the relationship focus in terms of how I approach the marketplace has always been consistent across, you know, all sorts of different roles in my career. Um, it was the case even when I was early in my career and worked at Enterprise across two divisions. It was even though it was a highly uh, transactional B2C business, I focused on the experience and building that customer for life. And that's 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 a different mentality. You can approach the world as if you're engaging with it with the intent of building a customer for life in multiple different capacities, or you can look at it as, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching the world and I'm engaging the world from the perspective of this is a customer and they're not really any different from any other customer uh, at any other point that uh, I might be in my career. So this isn't new. The relationship focus isn't new for me. I think when you're looking at having that relationship mindset, Um, the current state of how that should be applied, you should have a pretty strong visibility or pulse or sense into how are customers buying today. And that's critical. The reason why it's critical is we've all been there. People aren't responding to emails. People aren't responding to phone calls. So the solution can't be, let's do those things harder. Like I've said, I've said it before. And, and now the question is, well, why are those mechanisms not, uh, not, not yielding the results? Well, it could be one of two things. It could be both of them are related to whoever's sending. One, your messaging could be complete crap. And you could be just throwing out a bunch of stuff that nobody cares about that's either focused on you or your company. That doesn't work. Uh, or you don't have the right orientation and, and have a sense in, in how people are buying. So your customers... The experience that a customer has, it's incredibly noisy. Steve Watt is uh, the director of marketing at, at Seismic, and he talks about it, and he, he actually lays it out really effectively when he's talking about the buyer's world. 
they have 800 people that are reaching out to them on a day-to-day basis, t- telling them about how their solution is the best thing since sliced bread. Nobody cares. This is why your, your three paragraph emails that you send uh, on regular email or LinkedIn never get responses because they don't know you, they don't like you, they don't trust you. There's no relationship there. And then you're acting as if you're like God's gift to whatever agenda that, they, that, that your customer is trying to pursue. Right. So you have that. Delete. It's an immediate, here's the three paragraphs, delete. Yep. So, you know, when, when you look at that relationship focus, your relationship focus should be particularly uh, zoned in on, you know, you should have a good understanding of the problems that you solve, but your messaging and your outreach should be really focused on understanding where your customer is at in a given point in time. And you can approach it a couple of different ways. If you're just spraying and praying and you know, Steve calls it pitch slapping everybody. Well, your hope is that you get the 3% of the marketplace that might be in a position to buy right now. And, you know, I know the kids say it this way, that's dumb AF because you're spending all of your effort to capture 3% of the marketplace and have a transactional thing that serves your purpose, which is driving your commission check. Mm-hmm. Does it make more sense to to find the 3% or does it make more sense for you to outreach in a way where you're interested in capturing 100% of the market that might be a customer for you at some point in the future? What makes more sense? So, you know, that 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 is the critical question that people have to answer and sellers have to answer when they're going out in the world. Who do you want to be as a seller? Do you want to be the greasy person that, you know, is just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks? Or do you, are you really committed to establishing relationships in an authentic way? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because the things that are coming to my mind, they, the moment that I became wildly successful at being able to, and I hate the word sell to my customers, to be able to close business down. I mean, and, and that, and that's what it I mean it is and be able to all of a sudden be be successful make those you know commission checks come in it was when I stopped being selfish stopped going in going I'm gonna get this person to buy from me it was when I started going in and just saying hey today I'm not going to sell today I'm going to learn something about this person and I'm going to walk out fully understanding everything I can about this person and their company. After I started taking that mentality, it was all of a sudden, instead of trying to sell to them, I just became the expert on them. And if I couldn't get them to buy from me today, they became somebody I knew. And all of a sudden, they were sending me referrals. They liked me. They just simply liked who I was. They enjoyed the time that they spent with me. And I found that they were telling me everything about themselves and everything about their business. And we, I've, I've now made friends. I have people who originally were prospects that have become friends, that have become clients, that have become referral sources. And this is a book of business or a book that I have built up over years and years that people that I've known now for 15 years that come back to me and say, oh, Leanne, I've got a great referral for you. Now, that was, like I said, this is 15 years in the running where, you know, since I've been in the business 
and and when I explain, you explain this so much better. The way that I explained it to people was when I finally lost my, when I finally got rid of my pride of coming back to the office saying, I got one, I sold one. Instead of walking in thinking, I'm going to do that, I started walking in saying, hey, I had a really great conversation with a company today. And somewhere down the line, I'm probably going to work with that person. And and that's, uh, you know, I think that I think the caveat or at least the addendum that I would I would throw into that um, having a focus on what relationships did you build today? That's critical. Mm -hmm. But I think when you when you look at, you know, the mindset that you need to be in to orient yourself the right way, the focus shouldn't be in 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 listen. But let, let's be real here. I'm not going to I'm, I'm not going to like kneecap anybody there and say, hey, we should be ashamed of selling. Let's 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 take a look at the, the, the world. The entire business world is either in sales or in service to sales. So at some point, business is being done because if it wasn't, the lights wouldn't be on. So I don't I don't shy away from the selling aspect of it. No. And I want to say that out loud. But People buy from people who they know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. So the mindset, and Stephen Covey talks about this, uh, and, and it's really applicable to sellers, is your number one responsibility is to understand before trying to be understood. Seek to understand before trying to be understood. And that's how you should be thinking from an orientation perspective in terms of how you go out in the world to really build those authentic relationships. And that's critical because it's going to have downstream impact. That mindset is going to have downstream impact on everything that you do from your talk tracks to your emails, to how you engage on socials, all of that sort of stuff. And it's with the intent of capturing a hundred percent of the marketplace into your network versus cap, like throwing stuff against the wall and hoping you fall into the 3% that might be interested at this given point in time. So when you're looking at, hey, what is, what what does my mindset need to be? It's it's seeking to serve, seeking to solve, seeking to understand, and I would say this is aspirational. But you should care more about the initiative that your buyer is trying to drive than your own commission check. Mm -hmm. So the closer that you are to being that person that can give them a recommendation, understand their situation, and then give them the recommendation to somebody else that might actually solve it better than you. That's really the space that you want to occupy because that's what's necessary for you to earn that business for life versus being like everybody else who's coming in and talking about their solution as the absolute best thing in the marketplace. Because newsflash, Nobody's the absolute best in the solution for everything. So stop trying to be a Swiss army knife, which does like a crappy job of, of like 20 different things and just be excellent at the one thing that you solve. That, yeah, that's a great analogy that, and Swiss army knives kind of suck. Yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> great analogy. So I, the, the statement that rings in my head constantly is that I have worked at companies and my husband will tell you, all the time. He goes, God, I, I hate salespeople. I'm like, you know, honey, you're married to a salesperson, right? And he's like, yeah, well, I don't hate you. And I'm like, well, God, I hope not. We're married. <laughs> Sale, the sales life, has, the, the, the cycle, the, at least for me, it has drastically changed. 
it, it is no longer the and I and I use this term lovingly to all of you car salesmen out there, but it is no longer the car salesman sales. And if you're still doing it that way, you're you're not going to last long in the sales world. It is truly the relationship in, in order to be successful long term in any role said it numerous times now it is a relationship based selling but what I would love to learn a little bit more about you is that you you're an advocate for training retention um, you know all of that you went to school for understanding you know that at organizations and I would love to have you talk a little bit about that are you open to you know telling me a little bit more about the coaching aspects of of and what what you've done with that um i mean that's 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 a long runway um yeah i mean i think i I think in general terms i think in general terms when you're when you're looking at being effective from a talent strategy perspective and 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 really being tight across it you know you have all of these different elements in the talent strategy um roadmap or continuum you have talent attraction, you have onboarding, you have development, you have upskilling, reskilling, and you have retention. And then, you know, on the back end of it, you might have an exiting process. So when you look at that entire roadmap, if, if you're looking at what are the biggest things that impact your bottom line, it's, it's not just your ability to attract talent, but it's your ability to retain it. And there's a lot of different factors that influence talent retention. I mean, obviously, one of the biggest factors is, you know, who is the leader of the group that you're hired into? Because when you look at the biggest reasons why people leave organizations, high on that list is, you know, manager alignment. They, they, they play the biggest role. But there's other elements that play into a stay or leave decision as well. You know, you have the diversity component uh, of, uh, of the organization itself. Uh, if I'm in an organization and I don't see people like me, not at, not, not just at the peer level, but at all levels of the organization, that's going to impact my stickiness to the organization. So that's one aspect, but diversity is different from inclusion and equity. So the, and, and belonging, um, not only do you have to have, you know, a representative population in your organization, but you have to make sure that you're being intentional in making all of those groups um, feel like they belong. And again, that ties to does my organization look the way that I look at all levels of the organization? So I'm a brown guy. So, you know, if, if I don't see if I only see brown uh, brown people at the individual contributor level and then I look at my career progression and see that, you know, the rest of the organization is pretty monochromatic. Well, I'm going to at some point come to the realization that there is no path here for me. I might not ask. And it's actually when you're talking about underrepresented groups, they're actually the most likely to not ask and not advocate. That was one of the reasons why we actually launched Cascading Leadership was to, you know, kind of short circuit that tendency and, and have people take more agency in their life. So when you're looking at, hey, talent strategy in general, talent retention in particular, it's not enough for you to constantly operate on the attraction spectrum. You have to have solutions that, you know, once somebody is in your doors, 
you have to have coaching and, 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 and training at the manager level. You have to have upskilling and reskilling as a, as a component of your talent strategy solution. And you certainly need to make sure that you're being intentional in terms of creating an environment where fee- people feel like they belong. Because you can have a diverse workforce, but have an organizational culture that is toxic to diversity, either overtly or covertly. And you're going to stay in that in that talent attraction hamster wheel is what I talk about that. So what you just said, that is and I have spoken with, um, you know, I've spoken with other guests um, this season um, as I've been, um, you know, recording season two. And it is really you made a such a valid point because I've spoken with, you know, diversity, um, inclusion and uh, actual trainers who she owns her own business and that's what that's all she that she does she does coaching and and training and she's a speaker about in you know diversity inclusion and equity um i've I've spoken with a couple of people this season and um something that i guess i they may have said it and it it kind of went over my head sometimes during a conversation there's so much that is said but something that i did not pick up on was that yes you can have diversity at a company but if you're not at all levels representing that diversity that the different you know individuals within that organization then yeah you're 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 going to really damage again your your organization because you're right if somebody is you know somebody is black but all of them are on the production floor what how do they see their path into management how do they see their path into leadership I've never considered that. And that is such a valid point. So if you were talking with an organization at that is in that situation, what is the solution? I I mean, in my head, I can think of a valid solution. But how is that a coachable moment for you? Well, I mean, I, I don't think there's a, a single solution, but I think I think part of this starts at a, at a very fundamental level. Like when, you know, and, and, and I'll, and I'll draw an example out. So I recently, yeah, I post constantly on LinkedIn and one of my colleagues um, had an email exchange with a, a potential customer where, you know, he's trying to bring them into our, our sales ecosystem. And he sent an email on diversity and hiring and the customer responded and said, you know, whatever happened to, hiring based on character, skill, um, and, you know, a couple of other things, uh, likability or whatever, uh, instead of hiring based on race. And that hints, that that points at a fundamental lack of understanding that might exist in the broader world about what diversity actually means. So that person, you know, distilled or, or defined diversity down to a single category, and that's race. And a lot of people will define diversity down to a couple of categories, it might be race and gender, but that's not actually what having a diverse workforce means. That a diversity means exactly that. You have representation across any number of groups. So it's not just race, it's not just gender, it's you know sexual orientation comes into it, neurodiversity comes into it, uh, age comes into it, veteran status comes into it. There are so many different factors that create a diverse workforce. And the ultimate intent in terms of how how this impacts your ability to retain your talent is that the more representative your organization is, 
of the broader population. And the more people feel like, hey, there's somebody of me uh, and people can occupy multiple categories. So this isn't a check the box sort of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, the more your organization represents what the actual world looks like, the better you're going to be when it comes to um, being able to keep your people once you've gotten it. So it's not just a simple function of coaching. Um, and, and I'm not a DEI expert, so there's that too. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that, um, that Maya Winston, who is an actual DEI um, uh, coach, uh, and she's uh, the, the head of uh, DEI at um, 09 Solutions, which is a pre-IPO stage startup, and she's embedded DEI in a tech company from the startup stage. What she says is that, you know, the biggest piece of advice that I can give organizations is that don't be performative about your DEI efforts. It's not enough to throw up a rainbow flag or throw up, you know, whatever the, the, the DEI initiative is of the month and, and, and put a PR statement about, you know, this is what we're doing for, for DEI. You have to work at embedding that across the organization, not only in terms of what your organization looks like, but also how your organization behaves. So that means how are you engaging your entire workforce? How are you creating the, the culture necessary to have meaningful conversations about you know, one thing or another? There was a recent story that came out where um, I think... I, I can't off the top of my head come up with the exact company, but I think is a is a it's a well-known tech company. And one of their employees asked the question of, you know, do we get Juneteenth off? And the leader or one of the, the their internal employees said, Well, you get Martin Luther King Day off. So no, you don't get Juneteenth off, you get MLK Day off. So and, and, and when I talk about, hey, you can, you can be performative about your DEI efforts, that is an example of an organization that outwardly says we care about this stuff, but internally has a culture that is toxic to uh, a diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a single piece of coaching. We're talking about a structural change in terms of how we're defining some of these things, because a lot of us have backwards definitions of things based on our understanding at a point in time. And I think the key thing that I will point out is, you know, the worst thing that you can do if you're on the other end of that conversation, I mean, you know, my, my colleague that I, that, that, that got that email about what happened to hiring based on skill, you could have easily flipped out and said, you know, you're so ignorant and uninformed about stuff. And, and that's fine. But I think that's an opportunity to educate. Like my philosophy from a diversity perspective, especially when it comes to talent strategy, we should be bringing as many people together to have these conversations versus automatically defaulting into the position of you're right, I'm wrong, because what does that do? It, it, it's actually in conflict with one of the fundamental things that I talk about when, uh, when we're engaging as salespeople. Our responsibility is to seek to understand so if somebody says something or somebody has an opinion on something, you're responsible, unless it's like completely and obviously like off the wall crazy, you're, you, you should be engaging to understand, hey, tell me a little bit more about where you're coming from, from that, because you know, because I'm curious. And that should be the basis of, 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 of your interaction. But who is the judge on crazy? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so that. So who to, to answer your question. If, if the comment comes after, hold my beer and watch this, 
it's probably a crazy idea. So I think if you can use that, that, that as a litmus test, that's probably, okay. you're probably on safe ground. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Probably 30 years from now, the kids that are coming up are going to be way more sensitive to all of the things that you and I are having conversations about now, um, which is a, it's an absolute beautiful thing. But you and I have lived for so long in a generation of individuals who who do struggle and and time when my grandmother was sued for referring to people of color in and, and actually using that term when referring to a black person. Um, and she was sued for for that. But that is how she grew up. That was the terminology that they used. So in and again, 30 years from now, they're going to be using different pronouns in, in reference to individuals. They're choosing their own pronouns now. They're choosing. So as time goes by, you know, things are evolving and we're changing. But yes, as far as the sensitivity on and, and the understanding of all of this stuff, these conversations need to have so that we can continue to educate the people that are currently in the workforce, that are currently growing up and coming into the workforce. And we can only hope that things will continue to evolve and that people will open their minds to to what is happening and the and and the push to have more inclusion and diversity and understand what that means. Because if so, you would have asked me 10 years ago what that means, I would have said, well, that means that you hire people of different races. I didn't know what, for instance, I didn't know what neurodiverse individuals were. I didn't know that that was even a thing. I mean, now we're coming out with aut people who are autistic. They are now considered to be neurodiverse and that there's a huge spectrum and... You know, so this is all an education piece and and absolutely, but definitely conversations that need to happen. And I continue to educate myself. It's just a matter of these individuals being open and willing to learn. And unfortunately, there are people who are like, I don't want to learn. I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I, I'll the one thing that I'll say to all of that is I, I, I don't think it's a it's a 30 year runway. I think I think this is going to actually be impacted pretty significantly in, in the short run. And in the short run, the reason why is because you have millennials and generation Z who are building and advocating for these changes out in the open. And that ties into some of the buyer centricity stuff that I talk about from a sales perspective is that those sellers who are not only leveraging content collaboration to build stronger relationships, but are actually talking about their journey. And this could be as anybody as a professional. I, I encourage anybody, whether you're an accountant or whatever, if you're on some platform, social platform, you, if, if you want to build a career that has lasting impact, you should be building that out in the open. Mm -hmm. Uh, and being transparent and, and vulnerable to an extent, because that's actually what's going to drive um, your brand um, out faster. So you see a lot of people doing that across multiple functions. So this is where I, I challenge the idea that in 30 years from now, the world is going to look like this. Actually, I think it's probably going to be like two, three, four years from now, the world is going to look a different way. And, and I agree that the world is definitely going to look different in two to three years. 
And the reason that I said in 20 to 30 years is because in 20 to 30 years, you and I are going to be retired. Um, much of the this our generation is going to be retired and we're going to have the generation that is coming up and, and learning all of this and out and speaking and telling their story. They are going to be running the, these companies and it's going to be second nature. It's not going to be um, let's talk about this. Let's um, let's do training. It's going to be second nature on that. I, you know, the same thing with emotional intelligence. We have emotional intelligence training. Well, by the time my child, my four-year-old is in the workforce, there's not going to be training on emotional intelligence. It's going to be something that was in, ingrained in her from the time that she was little because I'm learning about that. My, you know, and I'm teaching her different things about that. So anyways, we are coming to time. Um, it, it, so I have the question of the season and I would love to hear your response to that. Um, if you could go back to your younger self and give yourself advice, when would you go back and what advice would you give yourself? Ooh, that's a good one. Eh. Okay. So this is going to be contextual. So um, when I was graduating high school, um, I was accepted to both Brown and Stanford and, you know, I'm a generation zero immigrant. So like not born here, um, and, uh, from another country. So we didn't really have a big network in terms of how you're supposed to like navigate this stuff. So I got a partial scholarship to both of those, but even at that time, you're, you're talking about a tuition bill on a yearly basis. That's like beyond anything that I could wrap my head around at the time. And I asked my uh, high school counselor, like, Hey, how do, how do you navigate this? And his first question was, you know, how are you going to pay for it? Which is absolutely the wrong frigging question to ask somebody that doesn't know anything because it's already my question. So your job as a counselor is to like open up a view into what's possible versus the limitation that you, that that's that you're currently dealing with. So my advice would have been go to Stanford. And the reason why is that at, it's that same era at Stanford where you had people like uh, Sergey Brin and all of the, the, the big tech companies that exist now, they were in startup mode at that time. So I would have been in that same ecosystem and who knows what that would have created in terms of just the network alone would have been fantastic, but it was the network at the point in time where you had all of these companies that um, were starting their acceleration mode. Um, so that would be one thing. The other thing that I probably would, would might do is, you know, early on, I would have probably advised myself to focus on building your brand and building multiple revenue streams in terms of your professional life and see what you can do to monetize that early so that you're never relying on like a single job, you know, you, you, you to drive your main balance sheet. So those are two different areas that, that, that I might consider. I don't know exactly which one I would, I would stack higher, but that's that's what came to mind. Awesome. So you went to you went to Brown. No, I didn't go to either. You I went to East. I, I, I went to Eastern Illinois and full, followed my uh, girlfriend at the time uh, because my my reasoning at the point was I can easily afford directional Illinois school. And the plan was to go to law school after that. So I knew I was going to spend a ton of money uh, in law school. And that ended up going a different direction because life happened and my parents bought a business and I ran that. And then by the time they sold it, 
I was like, well, I got to catch up to all my peers. So let me, you know, do like a real job versus this, this side business that they, they bought and I ended up running. So, you know, you, you look at in the point in time, you look at the biggest opportunity possible and you go after that versus the practical option. Like I've, 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 I spent my twenties and late teens taking the practical option Mm -hmm. with the intent of pursuing the next thing. So the lesson is the next thing might not ever happen and you don't know what's going to happen in the next year in your life. So go for the biggest shot. And here's the practical application for people that might be listening and are navigating like career searches and all that sort of stuff. You'll always have employers that come back and say, Hey, I know you want this director role or VP role, but right now, we want you to slot in at this lower level role and work your way up to it. My advice in that practical scenario is tell that employer to go F off because (laughs) if you believe that you have built a track record to get that top spot, you could literally drop dead tomorrow and the company will replace you. So Mm -hmm. go for the moonshot versus the practical earn your way up and you'll be better served. Don't slow your career down because somebody else is telling you this is where you slot in. There's plenty of companies that are looking for great talent Mm -hmm. and there's plenty of companies that will hire you at the appropriate position. Uh, The whole earn your way there is a sucker's bet. Mm -hmm. So don't do that. Well, um, Jim, this has been an amazing conversation. If somebody wanted to reach out to you um, to connect how would they go about doing that? And then where can they find your podcast? So you can find me on LinkedIn. That's my most active channel. Um, you, so I'm all over the place. I post daily on that. You can also follow me on TikTok uh, under the Cascading Leadership handle. We're uh, Cast- Cascading Leadership, which is the podcast. We have a LinkedIn page there too. So you can find us that way. Podcast is available on all major podcast channels. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel under the cascading leadership tagline. Um, if you're big into communities, I'm in a bunch of different communities. So Salescast is a community I belong to. So is, uh, the sales enablement collective. Um, those are Slack driven, so you can find me there. So I'm not difficult to find. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today and you have an awesome rest of your day. Thanks, Leanne. It was uh, great being on the show. Looking forward to uh, chatting some more. Thank you again for listening to Let's Talk HR. I appreciate your time and support. Without you, the audience, this would not be possible. So don't forget that if you enjoyed this episode, to follow us, like us, or share us. Have a wonderful day.